So good morning. My name is Dennis McNutt. Uh, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, we've been doing this Thrive series where we're, we're talking about God's Word and, and the importance of God's Word for our life. And, and this week, it's, uh, I get to talk about the canonicity of Scripture. And so that's today's topic. Uh, this year, we had a, a new guy join our staff here at Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, his name is Caleb Pearson. He grew up here in the church, and, and now he's working with Courtney and I down uh, uh, in the youth area. And so this year has been neat watching Caleb grow and, and, and do some teaching times, and I've learned something from Caleb. And, and what I've learned from Caleb is what makes a difference between a good teaching and a great teaching is whether or not you incorporate a Star Wars analogy into your lesson. So this morning, I want to start as we go into the, the biblical canon, I wanted to start off with a Star Wars analogy. So Caleb's favorite Star Wars episode is episode 7. And you know, people that are into Star Wars, I don't know if you know these kind of people in your life, but people that are into Star Wars are very into Star Wars. I mean, they're, you know, right. So you got, you got people that love Star Wars. And, and so... Uh, you know, that, as this franchise took off, people were writing books about Star Wars. There were comic books, there's video games, there's novels, there's a TV shows, you name it. There, Star Wars is infiltrated. So, so the real genuine fans of the Star Wars universe, they, they have come up with the Star Wars canon. And this is just the first part of it. It goes on and on from there. But the, the Star Wars canon is to say these are the legitimate, authentic parts of the storyline of the Star Wars universe. Anything outside side of this is not legitimate or not part of the true Star Wars story. You know, so you see in there there's novels and comic books and, and all kinds of things like this. But a canon, this word canon means, uh, uh, the way it's used today is kind of official, but originally it meant like a standard or a measurement, the, the thing by which you're going to measure everything else to see if it's legitimate or see if it's in or out. And so in the Star Wars canon, you, you could tell what things are in or not part of that Star Wars timeline. But I got a thing for Caleb because his favorite thing is episode 7. Uh, I, this question about what the most powerful being in that universe of episode 7 is because I went out on the internet, and I'm sorry for this, Caleb, but um, I found the answer for this question, and, and uh, it's on the internet, so it has to be true, because it says the most powerful being in this Star Wars universe in Episode 7 is this guy. <laughs> now, Caleb's sitting out, some of you don't know who this guy is, but Caleb's sitting out there, and he's probably upset right now, because like, this guy is one of the most hated characters in all of the Star Wars episodes. He's kind of this buffoon, this bumbling kind of idiot that kind of stumbles around and does things. But I went out on the internet and I found a guy who says that he is actually this Darth Lord that's really Jar Jar Binks is behind the scenes acting like the idiot, but he is the most powerful being that's bringing about all the things that happen in the Star Wars universe. And like I said, it's on the internet, so it has to be true. Not only is it on the internet, but there's a newspaper that did an article about this that interviewed one of the actors that says, yeah, maybe some of that's true. So I have more evidence to say that Jar Jar Binks is really Darth Jar Jar, who's the guy behind the scenes manipulating and controlling everything. Now, Caleb would have a legitimate argument against me on this theory to say, no, you can't take any of that as true. And his argument would be the Star Wars canon, that there's, a, there, there's an official storyline and people on the internet can write whatever they want to write. That doesn't mean that it's actually part of this Star Wars universe. And that would be a good argument against what I'm saying. Well, today we're going to talk about the biblical canon. 
And so we have a, we have a Bible here that's 66 books. We're mainly going to focus today on the 27 books of the New Testament. That is what we call the canon. It is these books and only these books, and there are no others that are part of the canon of what God has given us to be his word. And we're going to talk about questions like, might there have been others? Is it, is it possible that Paul, for example, wrote a second letter to uh, the church at Ephesus? And so there's a, there's a second Ephesians out there somewhere that we just haven't discovered yet. But if we discover it tomorrow uh, under some rock somewhere in Macedonia or wherever, that now you know, we'll have, and let's say we were able to authentic that Paul actually wrote this letter, would we then have to all of us kind of rip up our Bibles a little bit to insert a second Ephesians into our Bible? Is that a possible uh, thing? And also, there are many writings that have survived to today, today, lots of other books that in modern days we call them the apocryphal writings, or um, as you'll see in a minute, the lost gospels is how the liberal scholars will refer to them. There are other writings from early history, and why were those not included in our Bibles? Um, and so that's what we're going to go through today, because the Bible has always been under attack. It's under attack. These are from our era of times where the Bible's under attack. And they will point to these lost gospels, a gospel of Thomas, a gospel of Judas, a gospel of truth, a gospel of Mary, or these old writings that somebody found some little fragment of and say, well, really, this is the real Jesus. The, the, the books of this Bible aren't to be trusted because we found this other scrap that uh, tells us the truth about Jesus that really, um, that, and here's some other examples that, Jesus wrote this secret letter to his brothers, telling, letting his brothers in on the real secrets of who he was. Um, or articles like this in the New York Times, the Gospel according to Mary, uh, uh, the, these old uh, writings that theorized what the baby Jesus was like. And he was a holy terror, apparently. Um, so... You know, the Bible shock, 10 Jesus quotes hidden by the church. This idea that there's this insidious church, there's this man behind the scenes controlling and manipulating the narrative of the early church and hiding some of the true things about Jesus and only letting other things get through. The Jerusalem Post, lost gospel, claims Jesus had a wife and children. Um, these things come at, at us in the church. And here's an example of one critic that, of, uh, that will go. And this is a typical argument in those circles. And, and when you read a New York Times article about some lost gospel, this is right on lines with the argumentation that you're going to hear. And this is what they're going to say. They're going to say, in actuality, the Bible was voted to be the word of God by a group of men in the fourth century. Constantine the Great who was the first emperor of Rome to convert to Christianity, needed a single canon to be agreed upon by the Christian leaders to help him unify the remains of the Roman Empire. Until this time, various Christian leaders could not decide which books would be considered holy and thus the word of God and which ones would be excluded and not considered the word of God. And so uh, the church leaders gathered together at the Council of Nicaea and voted the word of God into existence. This is in 325 AD. Now this is a very typical argument for these people to say there are really real documents out there. So they're wanting you to picture sort of Constantine as, as this evil, you know, Darth guy behind the scenes, assemb 
assembling the hooded church leaders in this smoke-filled room as they decide which books are going to be the Bible so that they can manipulate and politically control the Roman Empire. And that's the picture that is, being, is painted. And, and so the New York Times will quote this lost gospel and how the early church was this political force that manipulated and controlled all that. So here's what I want us to do today. We're going to go through ancient church history. And it's, so it's going to be a little bit of a, a history lesson. If, uh, I encourage you actually not to take notes right now because I'm going to throw a lot of dates and names of people out there. And we're going to go through it quickly and it's going to be hard to write it all down. If you want it, email me. I'll send you my slides. Here's what I want you to do. Don't get hung up too much on specific dates and names. I want you to see the big picture. I'm going to throw a lot out, and I want you to see the big picture of what God was doing in these early years and really understand the true, genuine history and what we have today as the historical documents of that time period. So we're going to go through and remind you. It begins with the apostolic age, what's called the apostolic age. This is where the disciples are on the scene. You have Pentecost in 33 AD. So 33 AD is the year that Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He comes out of the tomb alive. The apostles go to Jerusalem. Pentecost happens. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're baptized. And the early church gets rolling now. And thousands of people are being added to their number and so over those next years, the, 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 this, the apostles are teaching, and they're teaching with the authority of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had told them that he was going to give them their authority, that when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit was going to guide them into all truth, and they were going to be the ones to proclaim his truth to the world. And, and so in Acts chapter 2, we get this, this story that these early believers are gathering at the apostles' feet, and they're being taught the things that Jesus had taught, the things that Jesus is bringing to mind for these disciples, what this has all meant, what all the things Jesus said, what the, what's, what's the significance of Jesus coming out of a tomb alive. Um, and many of these people had witnessed that. So now they're learning all the things that had Jesus had taught. They're learning what faith means. They're learning what salvation means. And they're at the disciples' feet. Paul becomes a believer by 35 A.D., 40 A.D. You have Gentiles becoming believers. So thousands are being added to this early church. The church is spreading out now into the Gentile world beyond Jerusalem and Judea. Paul's going on his missionary journeys here in 46 A.D. And by the way, he's not the only one going on missionary journeys. Some of the other apostles are as well going on these missionary journeys, and churches are starting all around the area. Paul's being thrown in prison. Other disciples are as well. Paul's writing letters out to existing churches all around this land. And so from about 46 AD through about 70 AD, all of these uh, 27 books are written. Now, some people will argue there's a few of them that maybe were written later than 70 AD. I'm not really getting hung up on that right now. But in a very short period of time, from that 46 to about 70 and maybe a little bit later, all of these books of the New Testament are being written out to the church. Now, the church in this time is continues to multiply and grow it's grown so big by 49 AD the church has to have a meeting of elders because already they're wrestling with things that are coming up in the church and and so they're wrestling with the the, the significance of Gentiles coming into church and whether or not they need to be so, so they have a meeting in Jerusalem and they're discussing these things and we also know from the the New Testament authors that there are already false teachers 
coming up and teaching against the things that the apostles are teaching. And so there are, some of their letters are right, being written in opposition to these false teachers uh, that are either twisting the things that the apostles are saying or creating new teachings of their own. And we have evidence of that in these early writings. We also have evidence of these disciples personally discipling other people, men, to send them out as missionaries. So one famous example is Paul taking on Timothy and discipling Timothy and sending him out. But Peter's doing this. John's doing this. All the other apostles are doing the same thing. They're discipling people and sending them out. And so the church is growing. 54 AD, Nero becomes emperor. 64 AD is about the time Paul is at his final imprisonment. He's in Rome in his final imprisonment. He's not getting out of this one. This is, Paul's about to be killed. Well, that's the same year that Rome catches on fire. Now, historians believe that Nero actually started this fire. But what we know for sure is Nero blames this fire on the Christians. This is an important thing to remember because this is a huge turning point. Up to this time, the Christians had mainly been being persecuted only by the Jews. But now, 64 AD, that shifts completely. Rome is now coming out against these Christians, and there is the first real severe persecution of believers begins in 64 AD. That right around that next year, about 65 AD, is when uh, Paul and Peter are both writing their final epistles because they both die very soon after this. But here, I want to point out one thing that, second, that Peter says in the book of 2 Peter. Because it gives us a flavor of what was going on in this early church. Second Peter chapter 3, Paul says this, he said, or Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now catch this. Here's Peter saying that Paul has been being given wisdom from God in his writings to the church. And, and this is significant because we want to understand how did the early church, including the apostles, view these texts that were being written? Well, obviously, Peter's viewing it as scripture given from God. He goes on to say, as Paul does in all of his letters when he speaks on them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Note this, there's already in 65 AD people twisting Scripture to their own destruction. Um, they're already fo uh, making false doctrines up out of Paul's writing, but, but Peter is saying Paul's writings is Scripture and it's from God. And he says, as he goes on, as they do the other Scriptures, very clearly comparing Paul's writings to the very Scriptures of God. And by the way, he's referring to Paul, Paul's writings in a plural sense, meaning Peter was familiar with multiple writings of Paul, and I would argue all of Paul's writings. Um, Peter, because this is 65 AD, Paul has already written all this stuff. He's, he's writing his second Timothy as his last one, because he's about to be uh, executed. And so, Peter's referring to the corpus of it. So already by 65 AD, there's this understanding amongst the apostles that what has been being written is the very words of God. It is scripture, and, and it's being referred to as scripture, and it's being referred to in the plural sense. You know, uh, Paul then writes his final letter that same year, and from Rome too. Peter and Paul are both in Rome. They're both about to be executed and die that very soon because Nero's on the rampage. 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul makes this interesting thing. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Treos. Also, which that's interesting, he wants a cloak. You know, he's about to go die. He's worried about this cloak. 
but he says also the books and above all the parchments. Now, we don't know exactly what these books and parchments were, but what, we, what, makes, what this is making clear is that this collection of writings was an important thing to Paul, even as he's about to go uh, be executed. So the early church had a high view of the things that were being written by the apostles. It wasn't, uh, there are some people that argue that early Christianity was an oral tradition. And what we see in these earliest of writings is it's not just an oral tradition. They cared about these writings. They cared about these scripture that was being generated by these apostles that Jesus himself had given the authority to begin writing these things. And as they were writing them, I believe, my uh, thought is that the apostles themselves knew that what they were writing was scripture. Because when you read Paul's uh, writing or Peter's or any of them, they're writing with authority. Um, and they're writing, commanding people to do stuff with the authority of Jesus Christ. So they realize that their writings have that kind of authority. Best, an example of that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So these early apostles had been told by Jesus the Holy Spirit was going to come lead you into all truth and that they would have the authority. And, and so as they're writing the churches, they're re realizing that their words are carrying the weight of the apostleship that Jesus had given them as very scripture itself. So they had a very high view of this. Paul in Colossians tells the churches to pass the letters around to each other. So the various churches are passing le these letters around to all these churches that's spreading throughout the ancient world. And they're collecting them and they're reading them and they're studying because they all can't sit at the apostles' feet anymore. The church has gone, grown way too big for that, number one. Number two, the persecutions have set in. Many of the apostles are now starting to be killed and dying at this time period. So they have to rely on what God had left them, which was these letters and these documents that the apostles had left them. From 66 through uh, 80 AD, and maybe a little bit earlier than that or a little bit later than that, but history tells us all the disciples except John were uh, martyred during this period of time. So the apostolic age lasts until that, that final apostle is martyred, and then it lasts a little bit longer. You've got John that kind of is hanging on after that because he dies of natural causes, and it's hard to tell exactly when John dies, but many estimate it's around 100 AD. So Many of these apostles are alive when, the, when Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem, takes down the temple. Rome is persecuting Christians. They're being spread across the world. Yet, through this entire time, the church is multiplying thousands upon thousands per day. It's going out throughout the known world. Uh, this map, we have uh, historical evidence of various apostles traveling to the, up into the Russia, over into the Europe region, down into Egypt and Africa, down as far as Ethiopia, over and down as far as India, into the Near East, and even some into the Far East. The apostles themselves had done missionary journeys, and they're discipling others who are going further out on missionary journeys. The word of God is spreading rapidly. This is all by 80 A.D., this is all within 50 years of the time Jesus died and rose again from the dead. They're going and carrying this message of resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead throughout the known world at that time. 
It was going viral, and the, these viral churches were relying on the texts of Scripture, and we have historical evidence of that before uh, 100 A.D. Now, this next one I mentioned, 90 A.D., is, I'm going to mention it just as a side note. A group of rabbis come together, Jewish rabbis, because the temple's destroyed. That's their heart of worship. So the synagogue has now raised to a new level of import. And the, the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures had always been the Hebrew Scriptures, but, but there were these other books that were being considered because they were historical documents. And so they decided to come together and settle once and for all what, what books really are in the Hebrew uh, text and which ones ones are just historical references, and at that time, they canonized what we know as the Old Testament. Now, I, I mention that because some, many of you maybe came up in a Catholic tradition where there are other books included in the Old Testament that aren't in the traditional Protestant Bible, and, and the reason for that is we, in a Protestant tradition, we hold to this 90 AD canon of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and we do not include some of those other historical documents. And there's other reasons for that we don't have getting time for. But many, many, many years later, the, the Catholic Church decided to canonize some of those historical documents. So that's why there's some extra Old Testament books in the Catholic Church. Um, so I just want to mention that quickly. So now we get to really the church fathers. The church fathers, and these are really kind of post-apostolic. The apostles are being killed and dying off, and John's maybe the last one around this time. But Clement of Rome, he was a personal disciple of Peter. Peter had discipled this guy, Clement. So Clement kind of pastors the church there in Rome after Peter's execution. And in 95 AD, he writes... Uh, we have some of his writings in existence, and, we, and what's significant about this is he writes and he quotes from a number of the New Testament books as Scripture. So the very earliest guys who are replacing the apostles, they're treating these letters as Scripture as early as 95 AD. By 90, it's 97 AD, Timothy's martyred. In 125 AD, and this is more over in the area of Turkey in a different region, um, this guy Papias um, and he was uh, known as a hearer of John, meaning he had heard directly from John and sat under some of John's teachings. He quotes, and we have some of his writings that have survived today, and he quotes from a number of New Testament books as Scripture. Now, never, it's not that he discounted any of the others as Scripture. It's just those are the only writings we have that have survived. But we know he counted it as Scripture. 144 AD, this guy Marcion shows up on the scene, and the reason he's significant is he's a, a heretic, and I don't want to get into his theology, but the big reason he gets excommunicated is he comes out and says only Paul's writings are gospel or, or scripture, and not even all of Paul's writings, really only like 10 of those. And even out of those 10, he butchered them up a little bit and cut out sections of it. He said only Paul's writings and only Luke and only parts of the gospel of Luke is scripture. Nothing else is. So he made that statement, and the church came against this guy big time because they were battling for scripture. The scripture was so important to the, the church at large that Marcion in 144 AD is excommunicated because of that. 150 AD, we have writings of Justin Martyr where he affirms positively as scripture the, all four of the gospel and the book of Revelation. We have writings of his that have survived that do that. 155 AD, we have writings of Polycarp. Now Polycarp, was a, he had been discipled for years under the apostle John. Um, we have writings of his that have survived today where he quotes from 17 of, we have quotes of his out of 17 of the New Testament books call, using them as scripture. 
Um, so Polycarp had a high view of Scripture. In 170 AD, um, we have manuscripts of the New Testament that had been translated into Syriac. So by 170 AD, the Christianity had spread throughout the world and had become so significant, and the Word of God was so important to them, they're already translating it into other languages as early as 170 AD. Um, in 180 AD, we had this guy, Arrhenius, who's a big, uh, he wrote a lot, but he wrote this book called Against Heresies. So he, he, he was arguing against all these little heresies that had cropped up in the church. But what I want to focus on is that a couple of things. One is he testifies to having seen an early copy of Revelation, and he quotes directly from 23 of the 27 New Testament books as being Scripture. That doesn't mean he didn't believe the other four were, but we have, we have positive affirmation from an early church father that these books are Scripture. Um, in 180 AD, it's the first time we have a, any kind of, mo- in modern times, that we have any, the earliest time that we have of anybody trying to make an official list saying these are the New Testament books. Up until that time, everybody was just saying, no, we know these are books, and they were quoting them. In 180 AD, it starts to shift because of these heresies and these false writers, people coming out claiming to be the, the Apostle Thomas and writing a heretical book, um, claiming that he was the Apostle Thomas, even though he wasn't. And so they, they start making, no, these are the lists. They start doing the, a canon uh, in 180 AD. And it's the first listing of a New Testament canon. And it includes 23 out of the 27 what we know as New Testament books. It's only missing Hebrews, First and Second Peter, and Third John. It's missing from the fragment that we have from that list. In 180 A.D., Clement of Alexandria. Now, modern liberal scholars, they love this guy, Clement of Alexandria. So when you read a New York Post article about the lost gospel of Thomas and why the modern church is deceiving you, they like to quote this guy, Clement of Alexandria, because here's the thing. Clement, he positively affirms 24 of the 27 New Testament books, but he also does this weird thing where he, he does quote from some of the ap- ap- apocryphal books. So that's why modern liberal scholars love this guy, because they say, look, here's an early church guy who took those lost gospels seriously. But here's the problem. He never quotes them as scripture, number one. Um, He does refer to them in sort of a historical way. But here's a a bigger point. in, In all the writings that have survived to today, he quotes the apocryphal stuff 16 times. He quotes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 1,517 times. So it's very clear if you look at all of Clement of Alexandria down in Egypt's writings, he is not putting those things on even playing fields. He clearly regards our four Gospels as Gospels, but he once in a while refers to those apocryphal works, and that's what the the liberal or the critics love is to point out, oh, look, he quoted from that book, but they don't give you the full picture. By 200 AD, this guy Tortullian down in Africa um, Tortullian is leading the church in Africa. He writes and affirms 23 out of the 27 New Testament books. He accepts 2 Peter, James, and 2 and 3 John from his list. But here's a really cool thing Tortullian that we have today of Tortullians. He writes a letter to the church. And here's a quote from this letter, which is amazing to me. Um, he says, Come now, you who would indulge a better curiosity... If you would apply it to the business of your salvation, run over to the apostolic churches in which the very thrones of the apostles are still preeminent in their places in which their own authentic writings are read. That word authentic means autographed, personally written. 
So here's what Tertullian is, is claiming as late as 200 AD. What he's claiming from Africa is to his church, he's saying, listen, if you're questioning the accuracy of these books that we're teaching from, go ahead and go over to the, the churches that the apostles led, and there you will see the original documents. And you'll see that they match with the documents that Tertullian's using in Africa. His point is, I mean, this is a really an incredible point when you really think about what he is claiming there. And that's in 200 AD. So what do we have from the, 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 the early church history, the fathers, all over the ancient world, up into Europe, over into to Turkey and that region, down into Egypt and North Africa? You've, we've got different church fathers. We see there is no central person who is telling everybody else in the church, here's what you're supposed to say is the Bible. No, every local church is wrestling with the words of the apostles, and they're not, they don't have unanimous agreement yet on what uh, every book is, and maybe they don't even have copies of every one of those books yet, because it's not like they have internet and cell phones in that day. I mean, it takes a while for, the, for these uh, letters to be copied and make it, and, then, and really for you know, somebody like Clement down in Alexandria then to take the time to really study his copy now and come to a conclusion that it is indeed the Word of God. I mean, it takes this time, and you see, but we have this wide attestation that the, these 27 books are, and there's a few still that were being wrestled with at this time, but none of the apocryphal books are being included in any of the stuff these guys are affirming to be Scripture, and that's all over this ancient world. In 200 AD, by the time of Tortillon, you got maybe 300,000 Christians. I think this is a critic's estimate, so I think they're conservative, but it grows to 3 million Christians by three, over that next 100 years, and then 30 million Christians by 400 AD, just to give us a sense of what is going on in the early church. Christianity is spreading like wildfire. These writings of the apostles is like gone viral. I mean, everybody wants their hands on copies of the apostles' writings so they can study it and grow in it in those years. In 225 AD, we have the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament in Latin in North Africa. So down in North Africa, they're already translating. I mean, the Bible is spreading out. It's being translated into other local languages. I mean, this, the, the Bible of the, what we know as Scripture today, back in that time, has already caught fire and is spreading across the land by 225 AD, being translated into these other languages. In 230 AD, this guy Origen, Origen wrote all kinds of stuff. Origen makes references to all 27 books of our modern New Testament. Now, he does make an interesting point, which I think is even more encouraging for me, because Origen does make a point that he says not everybody in the church accepts 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. And what that tells me is there's no central agency dictating to Origen what books he's supposed to say are scripture or not. He's being honest and genuine and saying, you know what, there's some churches and people that are still wrestling with 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John as to decide whether it's Scripture. But clearly, Origen doesn't wrestle with it. He's saying, no, he thinks all 27 of these are Scripture. And that's in 230 A.D. Um, in 249 A.D., just to keep the context of what's going in Rome, the church has zero political power during all of these years. And, and matter of fact, quite the opposite. They are being actively persecuted in all of these regions throughout this period of time. In 249 A.D., the Emperor Decius, he requires that all citizens in the Roman kingdom have a certificate on them certifying that they've offered a sacrifice to Rome's gods within the past certain amount of time. And all of this was, was a ploy to root out Christians, 
right? Because Christians weren't going to do that or get that certificate. So if the Roman guard stops you and asks for your certificate and you don't have it, then you must be a Christian and they could, they could like nail you to, and crucify you right there on the spot. Or if you had the scriptures. People are dying for walking around with these, these scriptures or having copies of them in this church. So it's not like they had political power. And it's not like there's some central church figure that's communicating out with the rest of the church. Here's what you're supposed to say about these books. Um, it's, it's gone viral around the world, and you're seeing uh, people embracing it. In 300 AD, we have a, another list that includes 23 of the 27 New Testament books. Philipp, it's missing Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, 303 AD, the worst persecution in church, Christian history starts. This is, um, it, and it lasts eight years. Over that next eight years, 400,000, estimated 400,000 Christians are killed. I mean, when you hear the old stories of Christians being burned at the stake and, and in the Colosseum being, uh, being fed to lions and just the craziness that was going on. I mean, during this time, that's like one out of every six Christians is being killed. I mean, it's, it's gone, it's on fire, and yet the church is multiplying. And yet they're writing these letters about which books are the, the word of God. And they're studying around these books that's keeping the church together. That's given them their hope that they're willing to go to a cross and be crucified. They're willing to go before a lion and crucified because of what these, the hope that these scriptures, these 27 books has given them. And that's in 303 AD. And why is that important? 307 AD, this guy Constantine comes on the scene. Now remember, he's the one that the New York Times wants you to believe created the Bible, right? Before this time, supposedly, there's no such thing as a Bible, right? Everybody doesn't know what the Bible is. They're waiting for Constantine to tell them. It's ludicrous at its very core. I mean, the historical evidence is overwhelmingly against this. 311, Eusebius is writing. He's a church historian. He affirms 20 out of the 27 New Testament books, and he says the church is still wrestling with these seven, he doesn't say any of them are heretical. He's just saying people haven't come to a consensus yet about Hebrews, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, and Revelation. Um, and, and to me, that's encouraging. It's not like uh, uh, Constantine's telling them, no, you have to include Hebrews in that book. No, the church is wrestling and seeing the power of it and the Holy Spirit using it in the lives of people. Um, and he specifically lists the stuff that is definitely not scripture. So if he didn't want Hebrews to be included, he could have put it on that list in his letter. But he doesn't. He just says the church is still wrestling with these books. So by the time of Constantine, that green area, the church has spread out into, and even some further than this, but this is where the, the Christians were more, becoming more and more dominant, all the way up into Britain, down into Africa, all the way down, and really all the way down into Ethiopia, over into the Near East, and even some into the Far East. The church has gone viral, and it's spreading, and this is at the time that Constantine comes into power. And, and it's important to understand that because the church already is spreading this word of God all around. And they are meeting to study these 27 books that we have today throughout this time in history. In 312 AD, and everybody, you know, when they make this argument, they point out he becomes a Christian in 312 AD, which is true. Here's a key thing, though. He issues the Edict of Milan that says basically that Christians are not to be persecuted anymore. Here's another myth that we often believe, and it gets promulgated. Constantine never makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. 
That doesn't happen for many, many years, and a different emperor is the one that does that through a different edict. The only thing Constantine does is end the persecution. He does not make Christianity the official religion of Rome. So that is another thing that it's a myth that gets, uh, that gets put out there to try to make you picture Constantine as the evil Darth, you know, guy behind the scenes manipulating the church for his own personal political power. In 325 is the first council of Nicaea. Now remember, this is the one where they want you to believe that people voted on what was going to be in the Bible. Already by the time of 325 AD, people are literally dying by the hundreds of thousands for what they know to be the word of God. The men that attend this meeting, one out of every six of them had been killed on crosses and burned. You know, these, uh, most of the guys that attended this meeting had spent years imprisoned by the Romans for their faith defending the scripture of God. I mean, the guys that show up this meeting had gone through that eight years being hunted down, many of their congregation members being murdered and killed for being Christians. These are the guys that show up to the meeting, and yet the, the, the critics want us to believe that these guys put on their dark hooded ro robes and submitted to whatever Constantine wanted them to believe and say, teach about Christianity. It's an absurd, uh, it's an absurd thought when you look at the history of it. And, and when you look at the documentation that came out of that Council of Nicaea, here's the fascinating thing. They, there was about 300 of them that attended that, and they didn't even discuss the canon of Scripture. It wasn't, even dis, it wasn't even a part of their conversation at the Council of Nicaea. The reason they had come together for the Council of Nicaea is there was this heresy that had come up and was spreading throughout the land that was teaching that Jesus wasn't really equal with God. All right, And so because this heresy had come up, these churches got together to talk about the, and debate this heresy. And the result of that was the Nicene Creed saying that Jesus is divine. He is God. And so the, the, the question of what books should go in the Bible or not wasn't even a discussion of the Council of Nicaea. Now it was, in later years, it was council, uh, discussions of different councils, but everybody likes to pin it on Nicaea. Nicaea didn't even talk about that. There was, the main issue was Christology. In 340 AD, we have an ancient codex that has survived that includes all 27 books of our modern New Testament. Now, it also includes two other books that aren't really um, lost gospel books in the sense that they were some guy randomly claiming to be Thomas and writing a gospel. These two books that they included were more devotional type books. So uh, the Didash and Shepherd of Hermas or Epistle of Barnabas. And, uh, so they weren't scripture and they weren't included as scripture. They were more devotional in nature. But all 27 books are in 340. But here's the thing I, that I want you to notice. After the Council of Nicaea in 350 AD, the uh, Cyril Jerusalem, he publishes a list, and he only includes 26 of the 27. He excludes Revelation. He's not convinced yet Revelation is Scripture. In, uh, but he also takes time to lambast the Gospel of Thomas, by the way. But 359 AD, there's another catalog that comes out of North Africa. Now, this catalog down in, in Africa, they affirm another list that's, that includes 24 out of the 27. Why is that important? Because if, if the 
Council of Nicaea had decided these 27 are the book, then why do we see after that from North Africa up into Europe over in India, we still see variations of whether or not James is really should be in the gospel, whether or not Revelation should be. They're still wrestling with Scripture as the church. There is no central force behind the scenes pushing it out. Every church is wrestling with these things locally. Um, 363 Synod of Laodicea, up 30 church leaders come together in that, at that synod, uh, this meeting, and they too, they still are wrestling with the book of Revelation. Um, it's not till 367 AD, and this guy was a, a big name in the early church. He was a, a, a hugely studied scholar, Athanasius. Um, he is the first one. He puts out uh, this list of 27 and say, now this, it, this is widely across the church. People are now accepting 27 out of the 27 books, the same 27 that you and I have in our book today. He, he mentions these other couple of books that are good to read but aren't scripture, and he specifically derides, he comes against heretical books written by deceivers, right? This is in 367 A.D., 393 A.D. down in, in, in Hippo in North Africa, they once again, they affirm the 27 of the 27. So by the late uh, 4th century, you're gaining wide acceptance. Revelation isn't being debated anymore. Uh, everybody's accepting these are the 27. But it's, it's, it's happening organically from the ground up. It's not some force behind the scenes pushing out an official uh, thing that everybody's supposed to believe. And what we as modern believers need to look at this history and see is that the Holy Spirit of God is working in, in, down in Africa. He's working over in Turkey. He's working up in Europe in the hearts and lives of believers as they engage this text. And their lives are being changed and they're coming to an agreement that these are the words of God himself. Um, there's no doubt about it. All the following lists after that, 27 out of 27. Um, manuscripts, I'm going to go through this quickly. Actually, Mark Carey next week, he's going to go more into the propagation of this, how the actual manuscripts and, and how do we look at these ancient manuscripts that exist. A point I want to make, 25,000 plus that we have in existence today, ancient manuscripts. Guess how many Gospel of Thomas has? Three, right? But it's the one the New York Times is going to quote to tell us that's the one we're supposed to believe and trust. It's ridiculous. And Gospel of Thomas is the most popular one, and it has three. All, everything else has maybe one little fragment of these other writings. I mean, they were not popular. They were these one-off guys. It was one guy on the Internet writing some crazy post about Jar Jar Binks. I mean, that's what these, that's what these are equivalent to, these ancient writings. Um, we have a lot of Greek ancient manuscripts, 5,800. Out of those 2.6 million pages of documents, and Mark's going to go into this next week, people, critics will often point to 400,000 variations in those ancient manuscripts we have. The reason there are so many, 400,000, is because we've got 2.6 million pages of ancient manuscripts. We have lots and lots of it. That's only one variation for every six and a half pages of ancient scripture that exists today. Now, if you back out into that, out of those variations, most of those are spelling errors. 75% are spelling and 15% are variation like synonyms, like they use fast instead of quick. Um, another 9%, the error is from a very late document, not from an early uh, church history document. So you're left with about 1% that are early manuscripts from early church history and are a genuine error, right? Out of those, none of those errors affect our theology, none of them. 
And that leaves you with one error for every 650 pages of manuscript that exists today. If anything, when somebody quotes to you the 400,000 errors, we should look at this book and understand people were dying to protect this book all across the ancient world. People were gathering together, stuttering, studying these 27 books, knowing what Christ has done for them, knowing the grace of God for him, knowing the love of God, and willing to die and be burned on a cross because of the promises in this book. They loved this book that much in that early church. And so uh, we have today the exact representations of the same letters that they had then. We hold in our hands the very ancient words of God. And it's reliable. I mean, there's, there is no missing letter from, from Paul. We have the 27 that the, that the you know, and, and I have no doubt that Paul wrote maybe some other stuff, but it wasn't scripture. God preserved these 27 for us. And so when we go home, is it my canon? Do I hold this up as my canon? Is it my measurement of life? Does it go on a shelf next to everybody else or every other book? Or is this the very words of God himself that I use and that I hold to, that I have the privilege and honor of holding these ancient words of God himself and studying them and engaging them the same way Tertullian did in 200 AD? That's an amazing thing. That's incredible. It's given by God. It wasn't discovered or voted on by man. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, again. And we also give thanks constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There is not a missing document that we need to have to know everything that Jesus did. We have the canon of Scripture. And we can be confident in it. And every Christmas and Easter when the New York Times publishes their article about a lost gospel of Judas Iscariot, we don't have to take them seriously. I mean, it's some random guy on the internet saying some crazy thing. It really is. It's the ancient world variation of that. Um, people were dying for this word. It was under attack. It was under attack when Paul was writing it. It was under attack by Peter. It was under attack from day one. It was under attack throughout Roman history, and it's still under attack today. I mean, that isn't new. It hasn't changed. It will continue to be under attack. And so I want to close just reading this psalm out of, uh, passage out of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Church, we have the ancient words ever true. We have the privilege, and yeah, it's easier to get a copy of it than it was 1,500 years ago. But that is a privilege and an honor, and we hold these texts that they died for in those years. So as we come together and sing that song, Ancient Words Ever True, let me close us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for your very words, Lord, that have been given to us 
down through the ages, the way you have kept and preserved them, the way we can, we, you've given us enough historical documentation to know that these are the words you would have for us to know. Lord, that in these pages we come face to face with Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. The love and the mercy and the grace, the incredible grace that we find in these pages. Lord, I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.